Because even though technically privacy pools are not censorable in the sense of preventing people from depositing and withdrawing in the protocol itself, they provide easier pathways to censorship for any merchant, any exchange, etc. Because they can very simply say, just prove to us that you're one of the good guys, and then you're, you're allowed to use your money as you see fit. And when we make that even easier, it just gives more fuel to the fire and more ammunition for governments to be able to, to wield that against us. The Bitcoin hardware wallet space can be a little confusing, but I'm here to tell you that the most important part of your decision needs to be the ethos of the team that's developing the hardware wallet. That's why I look to foundation devices. This team has proven over and over that they're committed to freedom of their users. They're committed to the sovereignty of their users. The Passport Bitcoin wallet from foundation devices is a beautiful, air-gapped, open-source, trust-minimized hardware wallet. And what do I mean by trust-minimized? I mean you never have to plug this into your computer. When you use other Bitcoin hardware wallets, you have to connect them to your computer in order to use them. You scan QR codes, you use an SD card. There's a number of ways that bypass the need to connect directly to your computer. And the whole point is to minimize trust. So look at foundation devices, look at the Passport Bitcoin hardware wallet, foundationdevices.com. Hey Seth, you're back again, man. Two weeks in a row. Should we just do a show together? Should we just do a... A weekly? There's we'll so much to talk it. about in yeah. this space. It's, it's privacy is everything lately. It's all like, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, it's always been a top priority for me, but now it's like, I'm becoming like you. It's like everything. It's like every day, all day, it's just about privacy because there's just nonstop attacks on it. Exactly. So. Slowly but surely, their, their crackdowns just provide more and more justification for all the tools that are getting built that do actually provide strong privacy. Yeah. So here's what we're doing today. Um, this is all inspired by um, this white paper, which a lot of you have seen. A lot of you have not, maybe, but you should. Um, Blockchain Privacy and Regulatory Compliance. Right there, it's a triggering title, right? Uh, Towards a Practical Equilibrium by Vitalik, uh, Jacob, Matthias, Fabian, and Amin Soleimani. And recently, Vitalik was on a podcast with Zuko Wilcox um, of Zcash, and it was really interesting. Uh, he went through a lot of the concerns that I had about this, and what I want to do on this, you know, over the next hour or so, is go over what this is, you know, go over how it's being presented and proposed like what use cases the creators see it having. And then the concerns that I have that Seth has uh, with it and that you guys have with it, um, which range from the technical, right, to the philosophical, I think, you know, as far as are we opening a Pandora's box here uh, or is this all just inevitable, right? Is this just the way that this is, this is all going to go? Um, but first, and by the way, along the way, we're going to play clips of Vitalik from that podcast. The guys at um, the PGP 
podcast gave me permission to do that. And it's, it's a useful way since we can't have Vitalik here. Uh, I, I, like I, I tweeted yesterday, I don't even know how to reach the guy. I mean, I, I saw him once outside of ETH Denver and I'm pretty sure he blew me off. He pretended he was on the phone. Um, and, and I know of no other way to reach him other than just to walk up to him. So, um, maybe one day, maybe one day we'll have a, a chat, but, uh, for now we'll just use clips. Okay. What is privacy pools? Um, uh, let's start there. And, um, Seth, I know you you recently read the white paper. I've been, I've been with it for what a week or two, but if you have any questions as we go too, like you should shout them out because uh, probably a lot of people do. But this is inspired by Tornado Cash, right? As far as like the idea of we need privacy of some sort. We need some way to break the link between the centralized exchange and the Ethereum wallet. And this is specific to Ethereum, of course. Uh, and we need some way to to do that. Um, it's in, so it's inspired in that way. But it takes into consideration, as mentioned in the white paper, that um tornado cash had a problem and the problem was that it was not regulatory compliant it was not uh approved by the government you know and um because of that it was shut down effectively it wasn't shut down obviously it could never be shut down entirely but it was it was uh it was chilled so tornado tornado obviously was not compliant that was a problem you know and that um a was shut down. B, if you sent tornadoed ETH to an exchange, you might have had a problem, right? That was an issue. If you if you mixed your ETH in tornado, sent it to Coinbase, Coinbase is gonna either not let you do that, or they're gonna ask you a bunch of questions, or they're gonna try to you know make sure they have you know proof that it wasn't used in a hack or something like that. Um, so these guys saw that as a problem, which it is a problem. We should acknowledge, right? I mean, it's like, you can't say that's not a problem. It is a problem. Mm -hmm. I guess the big question for me and the thing I want to talk to, to you about Seth and everybody else is how do you address it? You know, and I think you and I would come at it from a different point of view. We'd come at it from more of like the systemic point of view, right? It's like, mm -hmm. this is a problem because government makes it a problem. Um, but Vitalik and his gang came from it from the other side, which was how do we create technology um, that caters to the, the needs of government? Like how do we create to government specs a privacy protocol that maybe they'll approve of, maybe they'll agree to um, because we need to, capitulate basically to them or we've already capitulated to them in their mind um so we need to just bow down and like say what will you guys accept for privacy do you think that's pretty spot on so far it is i mean it's it's basically a continuation of what we've seen with tornado cash where governments keep saying how high will you will you jump and people right. keep jumping and then being surprised when they get smacked out of the air by the by the U.S. government, it's a it's a very similar situation here in the sense that I don't expect that if privacy pools take off and they're widely used, that that will prevent regulatory action against privacy pools or against privacy pools users. And I think yeah. a lot of it stems back to kind of like the 
kind of the ideology that I see in a lot of the Ethereum ecosystem. And this isn't a catch-all. It's not describing everybody. But um, uh, there's someone, Rachel Rose O'Leary, who has a, a very fascinating thesis about lunar punk versus solar punk. And I can't get into all the details here. It's certainly not what we want to cover. But there's this idea that most of the Ethereum ecosystem is solar punk and that it's, it's an insistence on optimism that really prevents it from preparing for the worst case scenario. Um, and I, like, I, I would love to see eye to eye with the optimism of the privacy pools approach that seems to think that governments will do what's in our best interest. Regulators will do what's in our best interest and that they will never abuse tools that get built that give them easy regulatory oversight or that even worse, uh, push and provide the tooling for individual citizens to self-regulate, which is a key phrase that's used repeatedly throughout the privacy pools, paper and documentation. So let's let's start by just listening to Vitalik in his own words, kind of describe what they're trying to build with with privacy pools. Uh, so the basic idea in the privacy pools paper is that it is a way that allows uh, users when uh, they send a yeah, privacy preserving transaction. And I'm being deliberately generic about whether we're talking about like a mixer that exists in an otherwise uh, transparent system or in a yeah, system where that's the only kind of transaction that you can do. Um, to specify in a yeah, set of possible inputs that their transaction could have come from without revealing any more information. Okay, so I don't know. That was really choppy for me, by the way. I don't know how it was for you. Um, but um, what he's getting at there is kind of the, the core. Like, if you look at this from the totally, like, objective point of view, the idea is to, I mean, what I get from that, the idea is to compromise on privacy just a little bit, like just enough to be able to appease some outside source, you know, and, and using that tornado cash example as a way, um, you know, to, to say, okay, we're going to do this, but we're going to take it one notch down. We're going to make it a group of people. And we'll get to this in a minute, but a group of people they call an association set that is, we can prove are good people um, because this is a whitelisting tool. This is a tool that is um, specifically um, used to white, create a whitelist. And that you, if you're not on the whitelist, you can't access it. And we'll get into more of that in a minute. But do you think that's uh, pretty accurate so far? Yeah, I, I certainly think so. I think to get a proper understanding of what the privacy pools approach means for holistic privacy, you have to kind of look back at Tornado Cash. And when you look at Tornado Cash, while it was widely touted as, as being a, a strong privacy-preserving tool, there were a lot of issues with users being traceable through Tornado Cash because of things like address reuse, timing analysis, uh, reusing the same gas fee. There were several ways that deposits and withdrawals were able to be linked. Um, there was actually a really good paper and a, a tool for analyzing the anonymity sets in Tornado Cash called Tutela, T-U-T-E-L-A. Um, and they found that about half of the deposits in Tornado Cash were potentially compromised, and potentially compromised in the sense that they could fairly trivially be linked between the deposit and the withdrawal. Which means that if you think that you're getting the anonymity set of 97,000 deposits, you're actually getting the anonymity set of 50,000 deposits. Um, and so you can't trust the broad 
set to be giving you that exact amount of privacy. Now, if you use Tornado Cash properly, even with those people who are shooting themselves in the foot, as far as privacy is concerned, you could still get good privacy. But when you take that already somewhat flawed approach to privacy, and most of those flaws are really introduced because of just the way that Ethereum is, is transparent by default. When you take that and you take the privacy pools approach of really further segmenting liquidity, further segmenting anonymity sets into these association sets, um, what you do is that you reduce the real world privacy, not just for the, the criminals or the bad actors or the illicit actors, whatever you want to term them, but you're also reducing the privacy provided for the, the common, normal, above board citizen who's using privacy pools. Because necessarily for them to be able to prove that they are not one of these criminals also using privacy pools, they have to limit the anonymity set to only those deposits that are approved um, by whatever association set provider they're using. And so they're they're reducing that anonymity set. And then as time goes on and they continue to prove that's those source of funds against other anonymity or other association sets that are the new chain analysis association set, or this is the new sanctions list from the US, every time they prove that and they reveal that proof publicly, they further limit what deposit could have been theirs. And they further harm their own privacy and at the same time harm the privacy of every single other user within privacy pools. So it's this it's this I think, incessant optimism that we can make regulation and privacy coexist that kind of misses the forest from the trees and destroys the privacy protocol itself while also providing easy regulatory tools to governments who may or may not be good and may or may not be serving your best interest. Yeah. And I think that's what Vitalik's talking about in this clip that I'll play, which talks about that a little bit, I believe. The biggest intermediate fate that's valuable to avoid is basically people getting annoyed at exchanges, right? Like this has happened to like people I know, for example, but, uh, you know, they sent ETH to exchanges. That ETH came from Tornado Cash. These were non-US people. And so it was completely legal what they did. And, um, you know, like, there's no, this is not a, uh, you know, like criminal law or a civil law situation for, from their perspective at all. But at the same time, the exchange treats them suspiciously, right? The exchange uh, basically, you know, freezes the funds until they provide extra source of funds documentation. The uh, exchange like might put up other kinds of flags if they uh, hasn't happened yet. But if they yeah, do it too much, it might even close their account, right? And the exchange itself is like also doing its own, um, you know, like really complicated uh, kind of balancing of. Uh, you know, on the on the one hand, their values, which a lot of the time are uh, some, at least somewhat aligned with the crypto ethos. On the other hand, wanting to keep people as customers, and then on the third hand, obviously not wanting to get shut down or themselves you know, like massively annoyed by governments. Right. Okay, so you know, it's a long way of saying this is about doing what you just said. Like, how do we back this into a regulatory framework that? will work. You know, one way, I mean, when you think about it that way, it is, it's pragmatic, right? It's like, this is the world we live in. I'm playing devil's advocate here. This is the world we live in. We're trying to build something that's useful for people. We're not trying to build something that's um, going to be just for a, a small number of liberty-loving pirates, right? We already have Monero for that. 
we're trying to build something here on Ethereum that's useful for most of the world. And most of the world needs a tool like this. Why should most of the world, maybe you can answer this question, Seth, as you know, since I'm posing as devil's advocate, why should most of the world be deprived of privacy uh, just because the government puts up these barriers? Maybe we can figure out a way to give people privacy and the government won't attack it. We're trying to make a compromise. We're trying to negotiate with the government here and give the most people the most possible privacy uh, in the process, uh, as opposed to just being pirates and just building stuff that we know they're going to hate and that they know they're going to go after. Like, what do you say to that? I mean, I think we do have to acknowledge that privacy pools would be an improvement in privacy on Ethereum. Like, that is something that I think maybe needs to be stated before we go further, because even though I don't agree with the overall approach, I think generally it would be a an improvement on privacy for those people who are allowed to to use it and are allowed to be in the association sets that are are helpful. Um, but yeah, basically, when you look at who should gain privacy and who should be allowed to use it, like the the aim of governments is to make information free. I mean, if you go back to the Cypherpunk Manifesto, a key aspect of that is that information wants to be free, and the governments are incentivized to make as much information as possible free or at least free freely accessible to themselves in order to maintain control over the populace and they benefit when users do not have privacy and anonymity because they are able to implement things that could not be done if there was the ability for for really democratic free speech to occur in the shadows for democratic commerce to occur in the shadows that's not controllable and not governed by by nation states um and while we can build these kind of middle ground tools like privacy pools, ultimately all they do is add more fuel to the fire for governments to say that tools that provide 100% privacy, or that's obviously a kind of a misnomer, but that provide full privacy for everyone, no matter what, it provides more fuel for the fire for governments to go after them because now they can say, oh, look, these Ethereum guys built something that we love. It still provides you privacy with a big asterisk and you can just tell us what your deposits are when you go to withdrawal you can tell us everything about your financial activity and then you're good to go um but it it misses the idea that governments will exploit weaknesses in cryptographic tools this is something they have done for decades it's something they have intentionally done where they have intentionally weakened cryptographic tools from the ground up so that they would have visibility into the things that people do and when we as developers and as privacy advocates, and I'm including all of the privacy pools people in this, we decide to make tools that simplify the job of governments to surveil and to censor. Because even though technically privacy pools are not censorable in the sense of preventing people from depositing and withdrawing in the protocol itself, they provide easier pathways to censorship for any merchant any exchange, etc., because they can very simply say, just prove to us that you're one of the good guys, and then you're you're allowed to use your money as you see fit. And when we make that even easier, it just gives more fuel to the fire and more ammunition for governments to be able to to wield that against us. And ultimately, I think the most damning aspect of the approach here is the idea that it enables self-regulation, which again, I think is a very optimistic idea. 
that it would be best if we as individuals could self-regulate and could handle reputation amongst ourselves. That's it's really it's a cypherpunk ideal that we would love to see. But the problem is when we build these tools that give the government easy ways to say you just need to regulate yourself. All we end up doing is bringing a lot of the I don't know the kind of Gestapo led just rat out your neighbor into the solution here. And they even they go into the paper. I don't know. I'm going kind of on a diatribe here, but. In the paper, they talk about how there's an instance where someone within a community, within an association set, has committed a crime. They want to get to the bottom of who committed the crime and go after them. And what the government says is, just prove to us that you were not the criminal, and we'll let you go on your merry way. And eventually, they narrow it down to purely who is the criminal. Which is great if the criminal is actually a criminal, if he's actually a rapist or a murderer, etc. That's fine. But you have to consider what happens if the government says this criminal is actually just an activist who's pushing for for freedom, who's pushing for democracy, and we want to get to the bottom of who in your neighborhood, who in your association set here did this. And then they leverage the same tactics that the, the Gestapo leveraged in the Nazi regime to push people to give over the privacy of others. Because essentially what you can do in privacy pools is is unravel the privacy of any other user. If all the members of an association set are willing to say, I'm not that person. Um, so it's a long diatribe to say that, but essentially it, it opens up this massive pool of ammunition for governments to use against us and to use against other privacy protocols that are not allowing trivial regulatory overreach within their systems. Yeah. And that was, that was also a big topic on, um, this podcast with Vitalik and Zuko and Zuko was asking some great questions. I don't really have clips of Zuko um, to discuss, but he was, he was doing a great job um, as were the hosts of the podcast. Um, but it was interesting as I was listening to Vitalik who did directly, and I have some more clips of him directly addressing these types of criticisms. It becomes clear that he's very keenly aware of the trade-offs. Like he understands everything you just said. He understands the plight of, you know, people who, you know, dissent from the government of activists of all of this stuff. But he sees this as a worthwhile compromise, like as a worthwhile trade-off, you know, to me, that's, that's way more dangerous than somebody who's just completely anti-privacy. When you have somebody who actually understands what's at stake, Mm. Um, but they make those decisions. And here's like, I'm going to try another clip. The clips are rough for us live with the buffering, but um, hopefully if you're watching this later, they come out just fine. But this clip, you know, where he acknowledges the dangers that could come from this and he sort of hopes they don't come. But I think deep down, you know, if you look right into his eyes in this clip, you can kind of tell that he knows exactly what's, what's going to happen. I mean, I think uh, like one of the fail failure modes of uh, something like privacy pools is obviously just network effects solidifying too much to get around like one single blacklist provider, which would uh, you know like inevitably have its own uh, bi its own biases. Um, the hope, of course, is that the system could be robust to uh, like different people having it having different blacklists. I mean. He, he in in one sentence or you know so he 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 calls out exactly how this is going to go um and in other parts of this chat he does as well where he acknowledges that the people that th th this is not going to be like 
you do a transaction and you choose which, you know, association you want, it's going to be automated. And these are going to be lists that are going to come uh, from like MetaMask or Etherscan. Like, you know, when you go on Etherscan, he mentions this in, in mm-hmm. there and you see like fake phishing or whatever, a label on like a hacker's uh, account. You know, mm-hmm. there could be association sets that are just determined by those tags on Etherscan. Mm-hmm. Um, MetaMask also has has tools where they pull, I guess, from Chainalysis or other places, mm-hmm. you know, as far as sanctioned addresses and, and things like that. But, you know, my question goes back to, and, and it relates to what you were saying before. It's like, when you think about um, last year, I think it was last year, maybe the year before, the, the Canadian protests that were going on with the truckers and the convoy in Canada, where they were protesting against the government, trying to force them to do something. Um, And the government then retaliated by freezing their bank accounts, by telling crypto exchanges like Kraken and Coinbase that they needed to freeze these people's money. Um, These people will go on those kinds of lists, right? So these people who, you know, majority of Americans would probably say are doing the right thing. They are vocalizing their concerns to the government. Uh, they would then be basically punished by not being allowed to have privacy. Vitalik would come back and say, well, they could have their own privacy set. <laughs> they could have their own anonymity set as, you know, the, the, the outcasts, but, uh, or like we, me and Seth and others could create a privacy set and group them into our privacy. It's like, but it's like, like you said before, it starts to fracture to the point where it, it doesn't make sense. We all know how this is going to go. It's going to end up with mm-hmm. one giant anonymity set of compliant people, which are the the sheep that just go along with everything, you know, and then there's going to be another anonymity set of the non-compliant people for whatever reason. They could be a hacker. They could be an activist. They could be unvaccinated. They, whatever it might be, they're going to be lumped into this other um, mess of, a, of an anonymity set. And it might even get more fine-tuned from there, you know? And um, mm-hmm. it's not going to be hard to tell the compliant people from the non-compliant people. And nobody's going to want to be in that non-compliant bucket if they don't have to be, you know? So it's mm-hmm. really about, at that point, about forcing compliance. And this is where I tend to go, you know, tinfoil hat, like over the top with, you know, bringing in like vaccines and, and social credit and stuff like that. But that's what I do, man. I just like look down the road, 5, 10, 15, 20 years. And I, and I see, you know, you, everything starts somewhere, right? This type of idea to me seems almost inevitable. Like it's like somebody at some point was going to come up with a way to create a mixer that was compliant, right? And so I see this leading to more segregation down the road. And we all know that if you give the government the final say on things, uh, it's not just going to be about criminals. It's not just going to be about hackers and thieves and drug dealers and terrorists. It's going to be about non-compliant citizens, right? And we've seen the, people already want to forget the last three years. It's shocking to me how much people want to forget it. They're dying to forget it, but you can't forget it. We had a government that wanted to punish people for non-compliance. And if they had a way to punish us like this, they would have done it. Especially if it mattered, especially if we're talking, I'm, and I'm not talking ETH. I'm talking CBDCs. I'm talking stuff down the road. Maybe your stock trading is done on Ethereum. I don't know what's going to happen. Um, but to me, this opens the door to that. But is this inevitable or could this have been avoided? I mean, I think the, 
the development of something like this was essentially inevitable because someone will do this like it, it, there there are people who in my opinion are naive and expect governments to continue to be to be good or come from places where governments have historically been all right at least uh and not account for the worst case scenario so i think it, it was inevitable that it was going to happen but the problem is was it going to happen directly via like state actors is it going to be a, a government or a chain analysis or something like that implementing something and trying to get traction or is it going to happen at the highest levels of leadership within a cryptocurrency community and i think that's what's so frightening about privacy pools specifically is that it it already has support from Vitalik, which means many within the Ethereum community will get behind it, even if they don't understand the implications of the technology. And I think when you look at like his his statement of what he hopes will happen with privacy pools, look in the space. Who is it who determines what inputs or outputs, what deposits or withdrawals, what Ethereum account is approved or not approved, illicit or licit. Right now, it's essentially state actors, either the government itself through sanctions lists, or it's companies like Chainalysis, CypherTrace, etc., who are extensions of the government apparatus at this point. Most of their money comes in through state contracts. They very much need to appease governments in order to, to make the, the easy money coming straight from the fiat faucet. So when you look at who decides that now, the simple extrapolation is if privacy pools becomes an actual implementation, an actual tool, the people who are creating these association sets that will be most broadly used are likely going to be state actors or chain analysis firms, which are essentially state actors themselves as well. Because while you can create your own, your own association sets, like say we, we were in support of a movement that was happening in Hong Kong or something like that, we were standing with them. They were getting uh, blacklisted by other association set providers in the space. We could create our own, but all that means is there's just a few of us now directly linking our deposits with illicit actors. Again, not that they're necessarily actually illicit, but directly linking ourselves with them. But we're also um, we're also very small. We're a very small community, a very small group, and the tooling around actually creating your so your own association sets, I would not doubt will be much, much more difficult to use than checking the box to use the chain analysis association set or the government sanctions one or whatever, because those are the things that are going to be easy to integrate. Those are the things that will have developer resources behind them, monetary resources behind them. So the easiest move for people will be to use the association sets that are the the most broadly approved of. And unfortunately, I think those will probably just be chain analysis or nation state created which will build a an even clearer separation within the space between white market and black market money. And it's something that we've been seeing in Bitcoin, we've been seeing in Ethereum, we've been seeing all throughout the space is there is going to be this dichotomy, the separation between clean tools that are approved by the state and allowed and unclean tools that are disapproved by the state. Um, and this only furthers that, but unfortunately, this also furthers that in my opinion, with the support of people who should know better. I, I, like you said, I think Vitalik understands the implications here. And even if you look at the white paper, the there's about half a paragraph in the last section that mentions all of these potential pitfalls and puts them in this future research opportunities category. 
So while the initial idea is being proposed that will likely be built on, especially with who's behind it right now, all of the most important questions to be answered are left for future research opportunities when they're the ones that determine, will this be a tool that can be used for good? Or will this be a tool that can only be used for state-approved purposes, whether those are legitimate citizens or illicit activity that is state-sponsored, you name it. Um, but it's a it's certainly a dangerous precedent to set and one that becomes even more of a, or that makes even more of a problem for the other legitimate protocols and tools that are building out privacy-preserving uh, methods out there. Yeah. And the other thing to keep in mind is that these, once this filtering, this association set idea um, becomes popularized uh, and it's used as a way to filter out what they call bad actors, which could be hackers, but could also be just non-compliant people. Uh, it doesn't just have to be on privacy pools, right? This could be used in a number of different ways. You know, it could be used as, you know, a sort of a filtering method for who can join a DAO, for who can buy a token, for who can um, participate in, in some kind of a, a governance process on Ethereum, or yeah, go even farther. You know, it could, it could um, play some sort of a role in the CBDC down the road if that runs on Ethereum rails. Um, there's a lot of different ways that this idea of excluding people based on um, sort of these arbitrary factors could create major problems, even for the people who support it now. And that's why, like, for instance, like, I was so surprised, I was surprised and not surprised to see Amin Soleimani as, a, as an author on this white paper, because he is an outcast of society in a way, because, you know, when he's not doing crypto, he's producing pornography. And this is a known thing. I'm not trying to defile or defame the guy, but he already knows he created a cryptocurrency specifically because people that work in his industry were getting like unbanked and were, were be having problems with, with banks, you know? So for him to now believe that the right way forward is to create opportun more opportunities for the government to whether it's unbank people or, or strip them of their privacy or keep them from using their money in a number of different ways, it doesn't make sense to me. So it makes me wonder if he understands that or if it's just sort of a blind spot. Um, and I, like, I don't know the answer to that. Last time I saw the guy, he threatened to punch me in the face. So I don't think he's going to tell me what he thinks. Um, but um, before I jump into one more um, Vitalik clip, um, Anything on that? Just on that topic in general? Not bashing no, I mean, me, but just in general. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I don't have anything to add there. I don't, I don't know yeah. the guy at all. But okay. I think just generally that, that concept is prevalent in the West, where we assume that because the things that we do today are legitimate, above board, legal, approved of, we assume that they will be in perpetuity. But we miss all of history, where we see time and time again that things that are approved of, are legitimate, are above board, rapidly become illegal and illicit when governments change and governments can change it very rapidly. So I think it's it's really a common problem among many people in the West, but generally just countries that have not had tyrannical overreach or have forgotten when they did have it in the past. Um, it's very easy to to forget what can happen and just assume that the status quo today will remain. And if you're building privacy pools and you view it as the status quo today will remain, and nothing you do right now is illicit, 
it's very easy to view this as a positive tool. You're not worried about being one of the illicit actors that people are excluding from their association sets. You're not worried about any of that. You just want a privacy tool that works for you. And while it might work for you today, you may be the person who's being excluded from association sets down the line very quickly. And that can change rapidly. Right. You know, one of the things that Zuko asked, um, asked Vitalik about was the idea here, because this is a whitelisting tool. You know, the, the idea is that it, it's these association sets are going to contain um, a list of every Ethereum address that can use the privacy pool. Um, and the way that it's going to do that is by, you know, um, it, it's basically a blacklist in the form of a whitelist. You know, but the idea here is that you are guilty until you're proven innocent, right? Which we, we've gone over a lot. And it's just another step in that direction. So he specifically asked Vitalik um, about that. And Vitalik gave a really interesting answer that I want to discuss with you. Like the words guilt and innocence to me refer like are in this uh, kind of criminal law or possibly you could extend it to a kind of, you know, like civil law or otherwise this kind of binary frame of, uh, you know, like basically, yeah, you know, like either you get whacked really hard or you're, um, or you're fine, which is how criminal law works. And I mean, it's also even, I think, uh, a, a fair approximation of like how th things like being canceled on social media even work. Right. And like, you know, we do use words like guilt and innocence to talk about those, but if we start talking about these, you know, like more medium level fates, then it's uh, like I don't think we have ever had a presumption of being treated with zero suspicion unless there is ironclad evidence, and that seems like that doesn't really seem like a yeah, principle that like these these kinds of things work at work at right. So just just to summarize, because I know if you're listening live, it was hard to hear. Um. Vitalik saying guilt and innocence, he's almost positioning those two terms as antiquated. Um, he is saying it's, and he says this a few times during the podcast, he positions it more as a spectrum. Um, he makes the case that there is no such thing as like straight up guilt, straight up innocence in a way. Um, we're all somewhere on that spectrum uh, and we're all treated as somewhere on that spectrum by the government. And so it's basically like a form of, of like purgatory, like some sort of middle ground, you know, where um, um, you're going to be treated with some form of suspicion by the government based on who you are, what you've done, what your activity is, what, you know, whatever your life has been up until now. Um, they're never going to treat you as purely innocent and, you know, they probably won't treat you as purely guilty unless they, they have, you know, the facts to arrest you or whatever. But um, this is where he's coming from, you know, and, and it runs so counter to, you know, what I see is the reality of it, which is if you're innocent, you're innocent. And the, 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 the principles that this country the United States were founded upon, which is you're innocent until you are proven guilty. And the reason for that principle is because of a long history of people being treated as guilty until they're proven innocent, you know, and, and being, have, being forced to jump through hoops or sitting in jail cells, just like the tornado cash uh, developer did 
for months without any charges being levied. You know, so it's ironic that Vitalik would sort of position this in that way when the entire privacy pool's idea is being, you know, sort of inspired by by that case with Tornado Cash. But what do you what do you make of that? Is there anything to it? Or to me, this is like a very dangerous divide in, in philosophies when it comes to because it, it, Vitalik is almost legislating here. He's almost like playing the role of a lawmaker. Uh, when it comes to the way things are going to work on Ethereum, like, what do you think? I, yeah, I definitely, I agree with you. I think the, there's really two main problems with that viewpoint. I think the first is that the, the whole premise of privacy pools implies that privacy without limits, privacy without regulation is something that is bad that you are guilty until proven innocent when you use tools that provide privacy without regulation and without oversight. Because the implication is that Tornado Cash was bad. It wasn't good enough because there was no way for you to easily prove your association or disassociation with specific people. And the implication is if you do not prove that you are not a bad person, you are a bad person. That is the entire, that, that to me is the premise of the Privacy Pools paper. And that goes directly against, like you said, something that's foundational here in the U.S. It's not foundational everywhere, uh, but it's foundational here in the U.S. and the justice system where you are innocent until proven guilty. And like you said, that came as a result of tyrannical rulers wielding a justice system that did not have that same premise in place to persecute people who should not have been persecuted. And that that innocent until proven guilty function must be foundational in society, obviously, we don't necessarily have a direct say in how foundational that is, because in many places, we don't have much control over our governments anymore. But that has to be foundational. And the other main problem that comes out of that is that Privacy Pools is now explicitly publicly stating that tools that do not have simple regulatory overreach built in make a person guilty until proven innocent. They're saying that those are subpar that those are not okay, and that we have to do better. That That is the entire premise of the Privacy Pools paper and the entire premise of the protocol. And when you look at that, what does it mean? It means that they're saying that tools like Monero should not be allowed to exist because they do not allow the same regulatory overreach. None of this is obviously explicit in their paper. They do mention Monero, but they don't mention that it's good or bad, etc. But you could also very easily say that they're implicitly saying that things like Samurai Wallet should not exist because there's not direct consequential or not direct uh, regulatory overreach built into the tool itself. There are not easy ways for you to prove that your funds were not ever tied together with a hacker or that you're not a hacker yourself. Um, and that it sets a broad and awful precedent that surely the U.S. government will use. I would not be surprised at all if something around the privacy pool situation comes into play in the court case that happens around the tornado cash indictment. Because in here you have Vitalik and other large, well-known accounts in the Ethereum ecosystem essentially saying that what they did was wrong, that we need to do it better, and doing it better looks like implementing tools that allow simple regulatory overreach. And that it's a it's a terrifying concept. And I, I somewhat agree with Vitalik in the sense that I think governments don't, even in the US, I don't think that they actually stand behind innocent until proven guilty in many instances, especially in how they wield surveillance tools. Because really how they do approach it is they they assume at least some level of guilt. 
even among U.S. citizens, but especially among uh, foreigners. And they assume that guilt until they're able to surveil them enough to decide whether or not they're okay. Um, so I do agree with him in that sense that like, I think that governments uh, incorrectly do break down the innocent and guilty dichotomy and try to pretend that everyone is at least some level of guilty until they're proved innocent. Um, but obviously I disagree with the, the outcome, which is the privacy pools protocol and white paper, and specifically the philosophical claim that when you use a tool that does not allow you to easily prove who you're associated with or not associated with, that it is necessarily a, a bad thing and something that makes you guilty until you can prove yourself innocent. Yeah, he makes some really great points. Um, I think that this reflects a lot of what's been going on in crypto the past couple of years, which is like uh, some sort of a race to compliance. You know, some sort of a, a race to see who can um, reach, come, or come to terms with the government first. You know, and, and in what way, shape, or form. And the idea there is what I said before. You know, these are these are these are people or their companies that feel some sense of obligation to modify their product to the government's speculations in order to make it usable by the most people. So they're okay with sacrificing on principles. They're okay with uh, trading away the rights of their users in exchange for mass adoption, you know, and it's the way you would build an application. It's the way you would build a startup, but it's not the way that a cypherpunk would build an open blockchain, you know, product project. You know, it's not the way that Bitcoin was built. It's not the way that Monero was built. So the problem is, though, like I, you you um, alluded to, that with each one of these types of um, ideas, as they come up and as they're implemented and as they're built into products and adopted, uh, it is an attack. It's a it's a form of regulatory attack against projects that are coming at this from that other angle. You know, like Monero, projects that want to build hardened. Uh, protocols that are impenetrable by governments that are impenetrable by anyone that wants to make modifications or, or cheat it or get it to stray from its from its mission. Um, so it's um, I don't think in Vitalik's head he's thinking that this is an attack on Monero or that or that this is an attack on Bitcoin or whatever it might For be sure. or on on Samurai. But I do I, I think that that's an unintended consequence and hopefully. He starts to see that as we talk about it more. That's why I wanted to have the conversation. You know, those of you who are watching live, I, I apologize that the call-in feature isn't working. Um, that's too bad. It's the first time I've tried it with Riverside. Um, but if you want to type a question into the chat, uh, we can try to address it while we have time. Uh, I do see one there that says, could you please address the point made in the paper that ASPs will decide uh, – will decide whether you deserve privacy to be in the privacy set or are forced to make your transactions public. What's an ASP? Is that an anonymity or an association yeah, it's set? the association set provider, which is who Vitalik at yeah. all envision being the ones who decide these association sets and host them somewhere and provide them for people to use. Yeah. he. Um, you should go and listen to the entire um, PGP podcast 
with Vitalik and Zuko because he, he does go into more detail about a lot of this stuff. And he's very clear with the fact that he sees this as being a pretty centralized process. You know, he sees this as being an automated thing that people don't even have to think about. Maybe more advanced users or certain subsets of, of people might want to create their own association sets based on, you know, people they know or trust or like a company or, you know, a group of people, an association on its own, you know, but most people that use this are going to use it uh, through tools that are readily available to them. That's going to be pulling association sets uh, from, um, you know, MetaMask or from Etherscan via uh, Chainalysis and the OFAC sanctions list and, you know, the, the, the list of non-compliant, um, unvaccinated people, you know, and, uh, it's gonna, it's gonna look like that. So you're not even going to think about it unless you're on the list. You know, if you're on the list of bad people, then you're going to think about it. Um, but the other, the, the flip side of this thing is, like I said before, it's easy to think of this as a blacklisting tool. But it's actually a whitelisting tool. It's built as a whitelisting tool. If you're not on the list, you don't get to use it. So it's a list of every possible address or, or coin you can, ID. You can use it. They they are clear and they are correct that it is not. There is no censorship directly built into the protocol. But the privacy you gain from using it is what essentially is dictated by whether or not you're on this whitelist. Yeah. So when I say you can't use it, what I mean is you can't use the big anonymity set association set that all of the compliant people uh, are going to go into the, the, you know, so it's, you know, it's going to end up being a 99% of, of, of everybody's going to be in one association set and um, 1% is going to be not. And uh, so you can't use that if you're on the list of bad guys. Um, but you, you gotta, you gotta think from there, what are the other implications of that? You know, and it's very, very easy to extrapolate this out one more step and think about, could this be used to, to force KYC? You know, and the idea of KYC, um, before you enter a privacy mixer sounds ridiculous. Um, but I, I think it could be pretty easily justified by, by Congress, by a regulator, by, somebody out there, because the whole idea across the board, especially with the US, we've seen it over and over, and we know it's true. They're okay with us having privacy from one another. They're okay with Seth not seeing my my uh, financial transactions. But they want to know everything, and they want to have access to everything. And they'll tell us, look, you got a KYC. We need to know what's going on. We're not going to do anything with that info unless we catch wind of something or unless we see something bad or unless this or that, um, that's how it's going to be justified, you know? And it's the same thing with this, you know, like the $600 rule with the IRS and with all this other stuff where they're just collecting data and data and data and data. And they're not looking at every little thing, but it's there for analytics tools. It's there for them to parse through, you know, in different ways. Um, even if it's aggregate, it's, it's still bad, you know? And, uh, so I, that's very easy to implement with this type of a thing, especially once you get people past this initial hurdle, you know, this and I mean, initial, that's like, even a, an explicit part of the privacy pools proposal. One of the ways that they envision uh, association set providers, it's mouthful working is by creating pools of KYC individuals and only adding people on once they prove who they are and that they're not an illicit actor. I mean, this isn't, 
Like we don't even have to extrapolate. This is a direct and intentional aspect of the privacy pool proposal, which is, is crazy, but it, it's understandable if you don't view that thing as detrimental, but obviously directly tying your KYC information on chain to your usage of a privacy pool and trusting some central provider to do that, that authentication, that identification is terrifying, but that's, that's already in the proposal. It's not even like that's something that Chainalysis or the U.S. government has to come in and say like, hey, maybe you should do this KYC pool. It's already in the proposal, and that doesn't necessarily mean it will be implemented, but it's something that is already seen as a, a reasonable outcome of the proposal. The other painful one to yeah. read was the uh, real-time AI-based scoring, which is a terrifying thing to allow an AI that's run by someone to decide who deserves privacy and not, but that's a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, so again, it's like, you can't, these guys are smart. They know what they're doing, you know? And I, I would like to have a conversation with them at some point, just to ask these very straight questions. Like how do you, like, do you see these potential outcomes, which clearly they admit they do, you know? I mean, it's, it's right there. And, and Vitalik said it in those clips, like he sees it, he sees the potential is this just what I want to know is, is what is, what is, do they see it as inevitable? Like they don't want to do it, but they have to do it. Or do they think that this is somehow going to be a net good for um, the world? You know, Vitalik also goes into detail in that podcast about um, how like in the U S like there's such a political divide. Um, you know, you got the, the, the left, you got the right um, something that's um super controversial to one side could result in an, in an association set that excludes everybody who's not, you know, um, in that political party or, you know, it's like using some sort of a voter registry to, to build an association set, you know, it's like, it's kind of crazy when you think about it. Um, those types of things can't happen without KYC, right? Because you're, you're not, um, you're not doxed on the blockchain, you know, your, your, your ID is not there. Um, but that kind of stuff, yeah, they address it. And I, I just don't know why this, like, why did this have to jump right to a product that's out there in the world and being pushed, like, in D.C.? Like, people in Washington are already talking about it, like, and excited about it. Like, why did it have to go straight there and not, you know, was there not another way? And I don't know the answer to that. You know, I'm, I'm not somebody who's out there writing white papers and building stuff. And so, like, they would say, oh, it's easy for you to say. But it's like. What's the, is there no answer? Is there no better way for us to navigate technology specifically with regards to privacy? Like, is it just, is this our fate to be sucked into these black holes all the time, one after another, until we're just completely, you know, in the matrix? I don't know. Don't know the answer. Don't know if you do. Um, I think it will always be a struggle, but it's, it's something where the, the goal of seeking human freedom will necessarily mean that we must go against those seeking to limit human freedom. And ultimately, these tools, hopefully, their goal is human freedom. But you you will get stuck in a positive feedback loop with totalitarian governments. If you are constantly seeking human freedom and building tools that enable human freedom, you are going to be stuck in this positive feedback loop that escalates that, that battle, that escalates that, that war over privacy and human freedom more rapidly than if you just sat around and let them strip human freedoms from us without fighting back. 
Will that mean that there will be harder battles in between? Absolutely. But will that mean that more people are able to uh, gain human freedom or reclaim human freedom or preserve human freedom over the long run? Absolutely. But it, it is this situation where I think I think we have to be pragmatic and we have to look at at history, both um, long-term history and short-term history, and see what governments want and see what we want and see how they diverge and realize that the tools that we build have to account for those worst-case scenarios. And I think it's that that lack of pragmatism that can often sneak in with proposals like this, where the the overall goal is, while I disagree with it, theoretically fine. But the problem is who is deciding what is regulatorily or what is regulatory good and bad becomes really problematic. I don't know if I've kind of beat that dead horse uh, quite a bit, but that concept I think keeps coming back in, in my mind is is viewing it from the lens of where are people coming from when they're viewing this privacy pools proposal. And that can help us to better understand why these things are being built. But I, I do think that there is an alternative and that's building tools that gives the maximum empowerment to the user and not to the state. And then if we are in states that require some sort of regulatory uh, visibility into what we do, we allow selective individual disclosure that already exists with Bitcoin. You can provide proofs that these transactions are yours, already exists in Ethereum, already exists in Monero. You can do that if you want to, but revealing that individually is not something that is easy to do, and it's not something that is uh, a built-in part of the protocol. It's just a fact that you can always disclose the information that you have access to if you choose to. Um, but it becomes much more problematic when we open that that up uh, much more broadly. Yeah, Web three D in the chat says you were spot on. We've allowed ourselves to be treated like farm animals. It's it's um, you know, and it's not just us. Like that that's one of the biggest problems that I don't know how to solve. It's generation after generation after generation of of people who have slowly been sucked in to this, right? And um, Somebody just put up on Twitter, like, reminded us that the Bank Secrecy Act, uh, oh, it's from Lynn Alden's new book, which is really good, by the way, Broken Money. Um, she mentions that in 1970, the Bank Secrecy Act was passed, which said that uh, any transaction over $10,000 had to be reported to the government. But in 1970, $10,000 was higher than the average income of an American, right? So... But they never changed that amount. They only dropped it. <laughs> they only dropped it over time. So it was higher than the average income. And then over time, the average income goes up, that amount goes down. And now it's it's so low that most of our transactions go to the government um, through the banks. And uh, they just, it's that frog in boiling water syndrome, you know? And so it's um, now the, the thing that the, the luxury almost that we have in the year 2023 is that things are happening so quickly now that we're experiencing, what is the law? Um, the law that says technology speeds up and speeds up and speeds up. I'm blanking on the name of it. Yeah. For some uh, reason I'm blanking as well. Moore's, Moore's law. law. Moore's, law. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Moore's law, you know, is, is really kicking in now. So in our lifetime, we're going to experience more technological change than probably the past five or 10 generations combined, right? So it's like, we're seeing it all happen. And that's part of why I think humans are A, going crazy and B, um, getting so wise to this stuff because we're wiser to this stuff than any of our, of our ancestors were, right? We're seeing more of it. 
uh, we're seeing more of it happen in our lifetime. So I think that we have that luxury. Um, and I think that it, that's giving us new insight into ways that we could potentially um, jump in to, to change the course of things. Um, there was another question. It seems to be the case that the privacy pool contract itself must be deployed to mainnet. That requires that each privacy pool has a publicly resolvable contract address, right? If this is correct, might this compromise any address which interacts with this contract address? I believe each, so I'm not totally sure. Did you gather from the white paper if each pool is going to have its own, like, will each association set have its own contract uh, address for a pool? How is that going to work? I'm not sure. No, my understanding is that essentially you'll have one broad pool. There will be no denominations. Um, and essentially how it will work is when you deposit, you just deposit just like Tornado Cash. There's no real difference. But when you withdraw, you can you create a proof that says what set of deposits within the privacy pool are your or could be yours essentially you can either just set that to the set of all users of privacy pools which would be something similar to how tornado cash functioned um or you can choose whatever subset you want so that's really the basis of it those those uh choices the proof itself does not have to be made public, but the privacy pools paper does recommend that all proofs are made public and are stored in perpetuity, uh, which an interesting take on the privacy pools proposal would be one that automatically discards all proofs and only allows them to be given individually to another entity. Like if you create a proof that you are this within this subset of deposits and you give it to an exchange and you don't publish that publicly, you are trusting the exchange to not share that. So that remains problematic, but the privacy pools paper also explicitly recommends that all proofs be made public. There is one slight advantage to that, but generally the problem is then all proofs remain public and it becomes much easier for entities like Chainalysis, et cetera, to deduce using those proofs greatly limit the anonymity set of users of privacy pools. But it would be one contract is my understanding. Uh, it would be one general pool, no fixed denominations on like Tornado Cash. Ultimately, they want you to be able to transfer between users as well within privacy pools. But when you do, you also need to create a proof and hand it down the line, essentially, to prove that a hacker didn't steal your funds or something like that. That gets into a whole whole kind of uh, kind of gets into the weeds of the, the actual implementation, what it would look like. But because you need this way to prove that you're a perfectly good uh, upstanding citizen, Whenever you send funds within privacy pools to another user, you need to somehow pass on, I'm a good citizen and I chose to give it to another good citizen as a part of that, right. which is problematic for the way the association sets work. So I think part of the future research they're going to need to do is how that would actually work. But it's another weird thing where you have to basically continually pass around a proof as you interact with other privacy pools users that you're a good guy. Right. I'm going to see if we can get Joy Raptor on. I know he had a question. Joy Raptor, are you there? Hi there, can you hear me? Yes. Love your avatar. Oh, thank you. I was working pretty hard on it. Uh, this is kind of its uh, maiden voyage, so it might uh, <laughs> actually freak out a little bit. Yeah, it looks like it is. But anyway, yeah, so I guess the essence of my question has to do with can Ethereum ever have privacy on it, uh, being that you have a public-facing figure that is largely influential and that public-facing figure 
becomes a, uh, uh, an attack vector for the protocol, um, not through the protocol, but through basically development and uh, public consensus. I advocate and help build tools that push back against authoritarian regimes. And my whole, the whole basis of my public existence is to push back on that. So I, I don't think that there is a firm separation between being a public entity and building or advocating for true privacy-preserving tools. Obviously, there is more pressure when you're a public entity, and there are reasons that you you would want to protect yourself and maybe maybe even introduce things that are a, a net negative for the world because you want to preserve your kind of the how you're viewed by governments. Um, but I don't think that we can draw a direct correlation between being a public entity and necessarily having to do that sort of thing. It really comes down to the ethos of the individual and how how much you're willing to stand for as a part of that. Um, and obviously, I can't speak for Vitalik. I don't, I don't really know much about where he's coming from. And I haven't been very deeply involved in the Ethereum community, but he, he could use his platform to push for privacy-preserving tools that are a net positive for actual individual human freedom and push back against this. Um, but I think like we talked about a little bit, I think there's kind of an ideological divide here that's more problematic rather than a, a technical divide. He understands the issues here, the issues that you're even made clear at the end of the paper. Um, but for some reason, unfortunately, he, he sees it as a, a positive for humanity to have a tool that has self-regulation tools built directly into it. Um, and I, I really think like that's, that's one of the biggest problems for me is that self-regulation, which is really the aim of privacy pools is exactly what totalitarian governments want from us. They want us to keep them in power and they want to keep us on their knees. And I think that's my bigger problem with someone who has such a large platform pushing this isn't necessarily that he's doing it for malicious purposes or that he's doing it to preserve his own, his own skin or his own standing. Um, I would doubt that that's the case. It could be obviously. Um, but rather that I think there's a, there's a, a misalignment in the way that the way these tools can be used is viewed. Um, yeah. Yeah. And I'll just, I just want to add to that. Um, I think that Seth, the difference though, between you and Vitalik is that Vitalik has made it clear that, um, he wants to work with governments. He wants to work with banks. He wants to work with Visa and MasterCard and JP Morgan and, and, and all the rest. So I think Joy Raptor makes a point to a certain extent, you know, with regard to, um, if he is now considered to be uh, um, a friend of those organizations, um, how can he continue to be a friend to them if he was to build adequate privacy or privacy that can't be in some way backdoored or compromised or something like that? You know, and I think that that's where there's a big difference. Nobody's going to call up Seth for privacy and assume he's going to be a friend to a government or a bank. Um, not that you're breaking laws, but you know, it's, it's that, you know, you're, you know, you've stated your beliefs. Vitalik has come out and pretty much stated his, you know, even though he sort of walks a fine line occasionally, you know, I think that, um, you know, and he says in the podcast that I, that I've been quoting that he thinks privacy is a right. Everybody deserves it. The most people on planet earth should have access to it as possible. Even if it means we have to limit the privacy of others uh, in order to make sure that the most other people have it. You know, so he's trying to sort of flip that argument around. Um, but I, I do think the point is valid that um, he might 
in that sense, be a little compromised, you know, because of those associations and because of, of the positions he's taken in the past. But um, Joy Raptor, appreciate the question. It was a really good one. But yeah, let's let's wrap it up, Seth. I think that um, we covered a lot of it off. I, I'd still recommend that everybody go and listen to that podcast. Uh, it's the PGP Pretty Good Policy Podcast, um, and it was featuring Vitalik and Zuko, and it's a it's a good conversation. And it's good to to listen to that after this conversation or before, but either way, um, you want to take into consideration all of these sort of gray areas that. Um, Vitalik successfully navigates, you know, think about, think about this on a deeper level. You know, this isn't black and white. There's no right and wrong. Um, there's, there's really so many different shades of gray on this, but at the end of the day, you need to think about this. What are the long-term implications of segregating people in this way? It starts with just hackers, right? It starts with, okay, we're, we're trying to block the hackers. We want to block the guys that stole a hundred million from this protocol and want to mix it. Okay, that's where it begins. But when you're pulling lists and you're giving the government the ability to create those lists, you know it's not going to stop there. And this is the time that we have to think about that. This is the time. Not later when we pull the, 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 the list from MetaMask or Etherscan and, and we're on it, you know, for whatever reason. You know, that's not the time. You know, if you're a Monero developer, you could end up on this list. You don't know. You don't know how it's going to go. You don't know what the future is going to hold. I, I think there's going to be attacks on privacy coins. We're already seeing them delisted. You know, there's something going on with privacy coins. We know that. We don't know what's going to happen. So we got to think about everything. You need to be, um, you need to go on a deeper level with this stuff that Vitalik and Amin don't want you to go there. They want you to stop at what they say and they want you to think, okay, that's right. But then when you go to that next level and you, you are a rational human being who's self-sovereign and wants freedom, you got to think through all of these use cases. And yeah, we've got Monero and yeah, we've got other um, pri privacy projects out there, Darrow and uh, Ergo and all this other stuff, Zcash. And um, there's all those things out there, but all those things um, are just as subject to the tyranny of the majority as, um, as anything else. You know, so we need to keep that in mind. When the world points at your project and says it's against the law and it's bad and it's criminal, you're going to be in big trouble. No matter, even if you're private on your blockchain, if that comment comes at your blockchain, it could blow it up. So, Seth, any closing uh, thoughts? Yeah, I think I think you summed up a lot of it really well. I think just a simple closing thought is that we can't build tools that sacrifice the privacy of the minority for the majority. And I think that's really the crux of what privacy pools does. And and there is an optimistic view that says that that's okay if the minority are only truly criminals and truly people who are are harming other people but like you said it's a slippery slope these things always start with only those people who are currently deemed criminals but even if you just take it from the perspective of people who are actually breaking legitimate laws those legitimate laws can quickly include things that right now we we view as above board and good those can include journalism dissidents those can include um, pretty much anything you can think of. And so the tools that we build have to account for the minority, have to account for the people who are oppressed or who will be oppressed, and have to be built to factor in what happens in the worst case scenario when a government tries to misuse, abuse, or shut down this tool. When you look at privacy tools or privacy pools in that perspective, I think it quickly becomes clear that there is great, great risk with the approach, where if you're an above board 
good citizen, according to whatever your government's metric for that is, you can gain some privacy amongst other good legitimate citizens, whatever that that means in your current your current government situation. But those people who are not that, who maybe right now you're just thinking of hackers, can quickly be you. And I think a lot of people need to need to think about and look through history and see what happens if I become one of these people who's not a favorite of the government. What would this tool still be usable for me? And would it provide me the privacy I need to continue living? What if a family member becomes uh, someone on one of these lists, even though they've done nothing legitimately wrong to harm other people, but have just done something against the government that I'm under or they're under? You have to consider that case. And, and I think it can sound sort of depressing to think of those cases, but it doesn't have to strip us of optimism. The optimistic view can be that we are going to build tools and we have built tools that will allow freedom for people no matter what governments say. Um, and we can we can view that as optimistic because the tools actually work today. There are excellent tools out there uh, and we will continue to improve and build on them. Um, but necessarily along the way, we have to be pragmatic and we have to think about the real world consequences of the things that are being built or the things that are being publicly talked about. Yep. So yeah, in closing, um, if Vitalik or Amin listens to this conversation, the one question that I would love to hear answered is, you know, what happens when the good guys go on the on the blacklist? You know, what happens when the activists or the, the dissidents go on the blacklist? What happens when the, you know, the U.S. government controls the list and they block uh, Russians who deserve privacy just as much as anybody? They shouldn't be punished for the sins of their government. Or they block Iranians. If the U.S. government controlled this association site, they'd both be blocked right now. The citizens of those countries wouldn't have the privacy that they deserve, that Ethereum initially promised that they could achieve uh, because of this type of a tool. So how do you justify that? How do you reconcile that in your mind? Um, that's what I would like to know, because I think that from there, it, it gets it gets difficult. If you can't justify those things, then I don't know how you justify any of it. You know, and that's a, now, is there a technological solution to that stuff? I don't know. I don't know, but now we've opened Pandora's box and this is here and it's time to talk about it. So that's what we're doing, right? That's conversation is everything. But Seth, thanks for joining for this. I appreciate you. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much. And thanks for everyone on, in the chat. Thank you.